Welcome to the No Water Methodist Church Podcast, where we hope to encourage you in your spiritual journey so that you may be a blessing to your local church and to the world. Friends, thanks for joining the No Water Methodist podcast again. I hope this is uh, always something that encourages you and builds you up in faith. This particular podcast is a recording of the proclamation of the word from this last Sunday in worship. And of course, I think it's something worth sharing because I'm the one who shared it. Um, so anyway, the themes that we're looking at this last Sunday, we read from the prophet Micah, we read from Hebrews, and we read a good deal from Luke, the Gospel of Luke. And the themes we dealt with deal primarily with how God chooses to reveal himself, not through worldly means, but through otherworldly means. And what that means for us is that he often uses vehicles, personalities, locations that are not of high esteem in a worldly sense. So what's it mean when the first person other than Mary to acknowledge Christ for who he is, is an unborn child? Or what does it mean when Christ is born in Bethlehem instead of Judea or Caesarea Philippi or a a large urban center? It means that God shows, uh, in some sense, preference for, you know, in one sense he he doesn't show any partiality, but in another sense he he shows a preference for operating in an an otherworldly fashion here and that he cares about people that the world doesn't care about. Um, The second theme that we focus on is in the Hebrews reading, and it connects um, to to Luke as well, is the the notion of obedience and the fact that Christ was obedient, and that should be our way of life as well, that there's blessedness and obedience to God, and having faith that he is who he says he is and was going to do what he's said he's going to do. So it's it's nothing too complicated here, but hopefully uh, the words that I say and just the, more importantly the words of these scripture readings just uh, convey a clarity to you that perhaps you didn't have before. Uh, the whole point of, of hearing God's word is, is having a transformed heart. So as you uh, continue on in this podcast, just uh, do your best to keep your heart and your mind open to, to God's word, and please forgive me if there's anything I say that gets in the way of that, but God bless you in your Christian walk. Throughout the Old Testament, the Old Testament is about Jesus. The New Testament is about Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and even though he isn't named in the Old Testament, it all points towards him. You ever notice that your Bible is at least three-quarters Old Testament? A lot of people look at it as this optional material. The optional material is outside of the Bible. If it's in the Bible, it's mandatory, it's essential for your salvation. You should know what's in there. Uh, Our first reading today comes from a prophecy, the prophet Micah, who has a prophecy about the coming, well, he's already come now, and he's going to come again, Jesus. I'd welcome our first reader to come forward and share that with us. Today's first reading comes from the prophet Micah, chapter 5, verses 2 through 5, which you can find on page 1300 of your pew Bibles. Let's listen to the word of God. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, 
whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Therefore, we will give them up until the time that she will traveleth have brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return until the children of Israel. And he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall abide. For now shall he be great until the ends of the earth, and this man shall be the peace. The word of the Lord. So this prophecy was before Jesus. And the prophecy was that this Savior would be born to the clan of Bethlehem Ephrathah. Of course, the, the town of Bethlehem is named after this subset of the tribe of Judah. And they were not known for anything uh, special in particular. Uh, they weren't a big city. I, I kind of overstated that uh, King David was from the outskirts of Bethlehem. But even so, it was not a big city. It was not, you know, when we think of big famous people, we think that they're born in big famous places, except in America where we have a lot of social mobility. But throughout world history, how many big people, big influential people were born in the middle of nowhere? Not many. And if they are born in the middle of nowhere, it's quite a thing. When Jesus was revealed to the world, he was revealed in such a way as to communicate a, nature, a message. He was not born in Jerusalem. He was not born in Rome. He was not born in a big city center with a bunch of important people. Rather, he was born in the outskirts of a little hick town called Bethlehem. He was born not to rich parents or influential parents. He was born to peasant parents of no account. We know there were peasants because when they took him to be circumcised, they had to offer a gift. And in the Old Testament, it says uh, if you have any kind of money whatsoever, you should offer a, a goat or a ram or a bull. But if you have no money, you have to just offer a dove. So they offered a dove, we're told. We know that they didn't have money. Whenever he was born, people of high status in Bethlehem or the surrounding area were not called to his cradle. Rather, angels appeared to shepherds, shepherds, borderline homeless people traveling from place to place without shower, they smelled bad. They weren't trusted because they're like carnies or like the Roma people, gypsies. They wander around and can't be trusted. And yet these are the people that God sent his heavenly host to to announce the coming Christ child. And whenever kings did come, they were not the kings of Judah or Rome. They were the kings of the Far East. We don't know what kingdom they came from. And they weren't kings. They were wise men. But even so, it came outside of the Jewish tradition. God was clear in the way that he revealed Christ to the world that he was showing preference for those of low and no account. And we'll come back to that idea whenever we hear uh, the Magnificat, Mary's Canticle here in a little bit. We'll go over those words. It's clear that even though the world doesn't care for the little man and little woman, God does. And God does not show any partiality between the two. The world has its celebrities and its celebrity thinkers and its powerful people, its Elon Musk's God doesn't care about any of that. God only cares about what's in the heart. He only cares about, you know, he doesn't care if somebody's born in Nowata or New York City or Bangkok. He doesn't care about any of that. He only cares about who's following him, who's earnestly seeking him. It doesn't matter where you're born. We come up with all these excuses in life about why what I do doesn't really matter that much. Oh, who cares about what some hick preacher does in some little town in Nowata? The answer to that is God does, and it matters. So here you have this prophecy about how the coming Christ child would be born in Bethlehem. Did that prophecy come true? 
Yeah, that was an easy one. Yeah, it came true. It says that um, he will be a ruler in Israel whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. That's kind of a weird phrase. How is someone that has not yet come of old, of everlasting? What, where, where did Jesus begin? When, did, when was he alive? When was he born? In the beginning, he wasn't born. He's the only begotten of the Father. He's co-eternal with the Father. We're talking about basic Trinitarian doctrine here. This prophecy made no sense before Jesus came, and they understood him to be the second person of the Godhead. But this is the only way it could make sense. He is of, from of old, of everlasting. And so he will take care of them as a shepherd. He shall stand and feed them in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall abide. Abide is such a, a wonderful pregnant word. It's just a very simple word. But when you think about abiding, I think about peaceful coexistence. His sheep shall abide. For now he shall be great unto the ends of the earth. And this man shall be peace. And as Julia read to us a minute ago, the fourth Sunday of Advent, we meditate upon peace and acknowledge that Christ is our peace. Peace is something that the world talks a lot about but doesn't really know how to seek. You ever notice that our peacekeepers wear guns? You know, there's an irony in that. It's not going to be the case in the kingdom. And that's not to at all cast dispersions on law enforcement or on uh, uh, UN peacekeepers or our, our military. We're living on this side of heaven, okay? And uh, scripture is very clear about God giving the sword to man for, for certain purposes. So don't hear, a, um, don't hear that sermon. But do hear the true peace that Christ offers there's no guns, there's no swords. The biblical imagery is that our swords will be beaten into plowshares. Anybody ever heard that phrase before? The future is going to require no violence of any kind, no struggle, no anger, no suffering, no sin. But in this world of sin and shame, how should we live? And the answer is in Christ's peace. So we talked about that last Sunday a good deal. We talked about living in joy. Today we're talking about peace. So we'll come back to that a little bit more. But for right now, let's, uh, let's go to the Canticle of Mary. We're, we're going to go in an odd order today. We, go, we do this section. Um, Mary, the mother of Jesus, when she was pregnant, visited her relative Elizabeth, who was also pregnant. And we're going to hear that story. That's the gospel reading for today. But right now, the Canticle comes right after that, when Elizabeth blesses her for having the Christ child in her womb. And this is the, the, the blessing of God that, that Mary issues forth in. And so we're going to do this like one of our psalms that we do. There's a sung part. You, you're going to want to open your hymnal to see the sung part. It's on page 199. And it's weird. And I'm not in control of that. We're going to do our best to sing it. Why don't you let me sing it through twice so you get the sense of it. And then you'll join me uh, for another two times. Do that intro. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh shall sing it together. We'll like it by the last time. I'm going to do it one more time and then join me. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed all flesh shall sing it together all right let's do that together she's going to do a little intro then we'll come in together 
That was good. Let's do that one more time. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh shall sing it together. So these are the, the words that Mary said. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. From this day, all generations shall call me blessed. The arm of the Lord is strong and has scattered the proud in their conceit. God has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich empty away. tell they wrote that in 1989. I'm, I'm not a fan of the music styles that were prominent in the 70s and 80s, but the words are still great. You know, John Wesley, I think we've read through it uh, before. In the front of the hymnal, he has instructions for singing. Have you all ever seen that one? What page is that on? Uh, let's look at that real quick. I'm going to preach against myself here. I'm missing pages. All right, directions for singing. Got the preface. Oh, there we are. Okay. <laughs> Where's the part where it talks about if it's a cross to you, bear it? <laughs> Number three, sing all. See that you join with the congregation as frequently as you can. Let not a slight degree of weakness or weariness hinder you. If it is a cross to you, because the song is terrible, then take it up and you will find it a blessing. He doesn't say because the song is terrible. I added that part in. But, <laughs> uh, but yeah, sometimes there's just church music I don't like, but it's associated with the text that I do. The music is just a vehicle for the words, okay? So the whole point, you, know, you ever notice how on, uh, I don't watch commercials anymore, because why would you? But if you, back in the day, I know a lot of you still watch commercials, there's like a jingle, right? And the reason they have jingles is because they want it to stick in your head. They want you to remember that deal that they're offering at the car mart or whatever. And it's the same thing with hymns. We don't want it to be a jingle, but we do want a tune to associate the text with so that it's bouncing around in our head. I'll never forget Jeff Holt one time. He was having a bad day at work. He told me later, he said... Uh, um, uh, he was having a bad day, and he, he got in his truck, and he, and he thought, this is the day that the Lord has made. 
And I, that's exactly what music is supposed to do. It's supposed to stick. And I, I kind of hope this tune doesn't stick with me, but I hope the words do. Um, the Canticle of Mary, the, often called the Magnificat, it's a wonderful piece of poetry. It resembles the, the Canticle of Hannah. Hannah, of course, in 1 Samuel, we read that story a while back. She could not conceive any children. But then when she offered her prayers to the Lord and dedicated her future child to the Lord, he saw fit to give her uh, a baby that became Samuel that she did give to the Lord. It also resembles the canticle of Zechariah, which was just the, a chapter before this, where Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth, were unable to conceive, and the Lord grants them a child. And then whenever Zechariah gets, Zechariah gets his voice back, he uses it to praise the Lord. But all throughout the Bible, there's poetry praising and blessing the Lord, for what he has done and who he is. And of course, those two things are inseparable, aren't they, right? What we do is who we are, right? There is no way for a bag man for the mafia to be right with God. Y'all know what a bag man is? Well, he's a bad guy. He just does the dirty work of, of the mafia. If you do something bad for a living, that stains your soul. When you do something good for a living, that is a blessing to you in your walk with the Lord, if you are indeed a believer. What what Mary lifts up here is what God has done for her, and then she expands it out to, this is who God is. This is what he has done. And this is the big cultural difference between Americans and ancient peoples, people in the Bible. We are very self-centered. You know, you'll hear a lot of people praise God, say, here's what he's done for me, and let me tell you this miraculous story that he did in my life. How many people do you know that will just say, let me tell you about what he did for the Israelites with it when they were enslaved in Egypt? Let me tell you about what he does for the poor. Let me tell you what he does for those who the world doesn't care about. But that's what she does. She says, The arm of the Lord is strong and has scattered the proud in their conceit. God has cast down the mighty from their thrones and he's lifted up the lowly. God has filled the hungry with good things and he has sent the rich empty away. He's talking about the nature of justice here. He's talking about he, she, this is Mary. She's talking about how God is different from the world. There are a lot of people who don't like the Christian faith. They have, like, gotcha questions. Well, if God is so good, then how can bad things happen to good people? You ever heard that one? Or you might have the inverse. If God is so good, then why do good things happen to bad people? You know, is God not just? Is he not powerful? A lot of Christians don't have an answer for this. They just kind of get bullied and shut up. The answer there is God is not the world. God is not the world. Bad things happen in this world. This world is not heaven. The whole reason we worship our God is because he has brought, promised to bring heaven to earth. And on that day, everything wrong is going to be made right. Good people will be rewarded with good things. Bad people will be rewarded with bad things. Do you believe it? Because God has said it. It's not just here. It's not just here that, uh, you know, the world rewards certain things, punishes certain things. God is going to flip things upside down. That is found in the Old Testament. That's found in the New it's all over. You can't run from it. The way things happen here on earth is not the way things are going to be in heaven. And a, a key phrase, I've already quoted it once today in James and in other places, is God shows no partiality. That doesn't mean that he doesn't love his children. It means that he loves all his children equally, and he's going to protect all of us. And bad things are going to happen this side of heaven, but there's a future day coming. That's what Advent is all about. Christ is coming to bring his kingdom. It's been prophesied. He himself said he was going to do it. It's foretold throughout the whole Bible. It's going to happen. And on that day, perfect justice will be executed. 
Is God powerful enough to do that? Is God good? Is he just? Is God a liar? Good job, Susie. God is not a liar. He said what he would do. And Mary, knowing who he is, knowing that he is faithful to his word, she just glorifies him. Can you imagine what it would be like to get pregnant out of wedlock as a peasant girl in an ancient context? Can you imagine how vulnerable and unsafe you would feel in an agrarian economy? We live in like the safest and most prosperous nation this world has ever seen, and we're all so racked by worry and anxiety. Isn't that so ridiculous when you hold that up against Mary, who she could be concerned about all these things and worried about all these things, but with freedom in her heart, she just glorifies God. Not just for what he has done for her, but for who he is, how he works. I want a heart like Mary's. Today's third reading comes from the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 5 through 10, which you can find on page 1693 of your pew Bibles. Let's listen to the word of God. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Above, when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offerings for sin thou wouldest not, neither hast pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then he said, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hebrews is about the hardest book in the Bible to understand. It's very advanced in doctrine, and especially when you're reading it in the King James, it's hard to get much out of it, especially in a section like this. The, um, the thing it's lifting up here, there are two approaches to religion. There's, there's rules-based religion, and then there's true religion. Um, there are a lot of people who say uh, it's not about a religion, it's about a relationship. Y'all have heard me on my hobby horse there. Religion and relationship are the exact same thing. Okay, true religion is true relationship. The two are not at odds, okay? Just like um, uh, 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 grace and works are not two opposite things. They're two pieces of the same puzzle, okay? Two sides of the same coin. There are a lot of things people want to turn against each other and make fights so they can just choose one and then throw out the baby with the bathwater. Here, that's, that's not what's happening. So the first thing it focuses on is rules-based religion, which deals with sacrifice, blood atonement. Um, throughout the Old Testament with the tabernacle and then the temple, you had a process of atoning for sin. Hey, Susie, quit distracting Mary, please. Just sit here. Yeah, good. All right. So I'm not going to ever correct any of you like I correct my children. I would do it quietly, but I can't be in two places at once. So anyway, you're doing great. Pay attention. So blood atonement, you'd get bulls, goats, rams, you'd bring them to a priest who would then officiate over a sacrifice, and the blood would then be metaphorically applied to cover your sins. And um, the prophet Micah said, uh, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. There are places in the Old Testament and the New Testament that seem to question how powerful blood atonement is from animals. Now, there are some Christians that really go off the deep end and say blood atonement was never real, doesn't matter. If that's the case, then Jesus' sacrifice doesn't mean anything because Jesus 
is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's his blood being applied to our hearts that purchases our salvation. If blood atonement doesn't do anything, well, then what did Jesus do? Nothing. So blood atonement definitely does something, but what it seems to be picking on here is what Jesus himself picked on with the Pharisees whenever he said, they strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Isn't that a funny metaphor? A gnat is this tiny thing, and then a camel is huge. He's, that's a metaphor. He says with sin, they focus on these real particular things, but then they don't even, they miss the forest for the trees. They're so focused on these details, they don't get the point of them. Their lives become ticking off this box, checking off this box, and they don't realize that all of it is pointing towards something greater. And that something greater, let me be explicit, is holiness. That's the whole point of the Old Testament law, is to make the people holy. God's design in choosing the Jews was not selecting them and then condemning the rest of the world to hell. Rather, the Jews were supposed to be a holy priestly nation that would then lead the rest of the world to a saving relationship with God. Didn't work out that way. They either abandoned the law altogether or they had the wrong, wrong relationship with the law, checking off those boxes, thinking it was all about the rules. But the rules point towards something. Jesus was dealing with this throughout his whole message and ministry. He didn't observe the Sabbath in the way they liked. He wasn't ticking off the boxes the way that they liked. He said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Likewise, the law was made for holiness, not man made for ticking off the boxes of the law. So here it holds up the sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body thou hast prepared me. And then it turns to, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written me to do thy will, O God. And then again in verse 9 he says, he's quoting Jesus here, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. So here what it's holding up is, are you here to do a bunch of rules or are you here to do God's will? And it, focuses, it talks about these things like they're two separate things, but they're not two separate things. Because if you want to do God's will, it just so happens you're going to obey the rules. Just like my kids love me, and if they love me, they will obey the rules. But just because they're obeying the rules doesn't mean they're right with me in their heart. Okay? So there's a way that this all... Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness... And all these other things will come into the picture after that. All these things will be added unto you. The whole notion is we need to start with, the, put the first things first, the most important things where they belong, and everything uh, filters down from there. Everything comes into place. But if we're not right with God, it doesn't matter how much we obey his law, how many check boxes we tick off. If we're not right with God, it doesn't matter how many people love us. It doesn't matter how much money we have. It doesn't matter if everybody at the church thinks I'm a swell guy. If I'm not right with God, I have nothing. Put first things first. And what Christ modeled is absolute submissive obedience with the Father. Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. Which is why it's wonderful that we've retained this language of Christ is Lord. What does Lord mean? boss. He's the boss. I'm not the boss of my life. God's the boss of my life. And every day my life is not doing what's right in my own eyes like the people did in Judges. And we saw how that worked out. My life is about doing what's right in God's eyes. And he has told me how I ought to live. And my life is not about doing what I want. My life's about doing what he wants. And then that's tied to the larger message today because God is mighty. One day he will return for an account, 
And when he does so, I want him to greet me as a faithful servant. The biblical words are, well done, good and faithful servant. But can you be a servant of someone else if you're only ever serving yourself? Absolutely not. So there has to be this call to repentance all the time. Not my will, Lord, but thy will be done. Jesus modeled that for us. And yes, he modeled sacrifice and he obeyed the law, but he always knew what the law was pointing towards. And that is holiness, righteousness, first things first. And as he pioneered our faith, so we follow in his footsteps. Amen? Amen. Our final reading this morning comes from right before Mary's Canticle. It's uh, the Gospel of Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 45, which you can find on page 1427 of your pew Bibles. Listen to the word of the Lord. And Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste into a city of Judah. And entered into the house of Zacharias and saluted Elizabeth. And it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. And she spake out with a loud voice and said, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And whence is this to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For lo, as soon as the voice of thy salutation sounded in mine ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she that believed, for there shall be a performance of those things which were told her from the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. I love this reading more and more. This stuff gets richer for me the older I get, the more times I uh, walk over these paths. And it fits within this theme, doesn't it, of God making himself known to the lowly and of no account. When you think about the demographic that is most lowly and of no account, that has no power because their voices cannot be heard, it's the voices of the unborn, isn't it? And yet it's an unborn baby that validates who Christ Jesus is first. Before he's even born, in the womb, a baby leaps for joy and Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, and she knows exactly what it means. She calls him Lord, which means boss. What's it like to look at another woman's pregnant belly and say, my Lord's in there? That is weird. But they handled it with grace. Elizabeth is praising God, and then Mary responds by praising the Lord herself. It's this wonderful act of hum humble humility. Christ being revealed among these two women of no account. Well, maybe Elizabeth is somewhat of account. She is the wife of the high priest. But even so, it's quite a thing to imagine. I, I honestly, there are so many cultural differences between me and them. I would just love to go back in time and see how this all happened. What to be a fly on the wall, seeing these two women, knowing that they are right then and there at the center of God's plan for the salvation of all creation. That's a big deal. And there's not a man in sight, is there? It's two women and their babies. Quite a thing. I'm blown away by it. The other thing I think is worth mentioning here. There are several people in the Bible that are touched or filled by the Holy Spirit before Christ even comes. Is it the Holy Spirit filling someone that saves them? Even though Elizabeth was wonderfully blessed in this moment, I think we have to be clear 
This, is, this did not purchase her salvation. It's possible to be filled by the Holy Spirit and not yet be saved. It's kind of a hard thing to talk about. It's kind of hard to understand. Methodists don't talk about the Holy Spirit much anymore because it's weird. You know, people who talk about the Holy Spirit, they're weird people. They're charismatics. They run up and down the aisle, right? They, they, they do the slaying in the Spirit, and they, they speak in tongues. So we'll talk about the Father. We'll talk about the Son. Talking about the Holy Spirit's kind of weird. But something we have to be clear about is even though the Holy Spirit filling somebody doesn't save them, when you are saved, you should be filled with the Holy Spirit regularly. Paul says this very clearly. Elizabeth was blessed with the Holy Spirit. It gave her knowledge that she didn't have. It gave her this wonderful, ecstatic experience. We should pray for the Holy Spirit. And yet, are we familiar? I remember, I remember the first time I encountered this notion. Everybody went to church camp when I, when I was a kid. And there were kids that would go to church camp, and they would get saved every doggone summer. Oh, it didn't take last summer. I had another experience this summer. I got saved this summer. Comes a point where you're just going, if it doesn't stick, you aren't saved, girl. I wish I'd had the courage to say that to somebody and see what happened. It's not a helpful thing to say. I don't wish I would have said that. I just kind of said, hmm. But there, how many people go to church every Sunday and they, they experience the Holy Spirit and they're running up and down the aisles and then they go home and they're abusive to their wife and kids? Or they're dishonest in their business practice? Or they're lazy and dilly-daddle time away? And yes, that is a sin. There are tons of people who have amazing mountaintop experiences with the Lord, but it doesn't translate over to what it should. And what's the whole purpose here? What's the main thing? Once again, it is holiness. It's righteousness. It's a life lived in humble submission to the Lord. It's what we were talking about with the Hebrews reading. Jesus modeled. He wasn't running up and down aisles. He was healing people. And that's not, I shouldn't knock churches where people, I'm glad that they're getting some exercise in, all right? But the thing is, what God cares about, the whole reason he's given us the Holy Spirit, the church, the Bible, all the things he's given us, it's to achieve something in us. And God desires that we should look like him. Be ye holy as God himself is holy. Jesus says, be perfect as God is perfect. It's a high order. We're not even going to come close to making it if we think that our faith is about having a personal mountaintop experience all the time. That's something that flows out of a true faith. But it's not the core of it. The core of it is faithful obedience day after day, week after week, month after month, that proceeds not just to death, but long past into eternity. That's the high and holy calling to which we've been called. That's what Christ Jesus modeled. That's what his mother modeled. You ever think about how hard it must have been to be Mary? Your son is supposed to be your boss. Mama Bear, is that easy? No. I sure hope Jesse's not my boss in the future. That kid is a mongrel. We named him Wolverine, and he took it seriously. But Mary, she, she's changing his diapers. She's teaching him to walk and talk. She's going through. Maybe you don't believe she had to teach him. Maybe he, maybe he had perfect continence. But even so, you're watching him grow up. You ever notice in ancient artwork, Jesus always looks like a grumpy old man, even as an infant? It's because they couldn't believe that he was actually just an infant at one point and needed to be helped and coddled and, and brought up by a mother. That he was, he, they made him look like a little adult because he was perfect, right? And to be a child is imperfect. 
We don't have that cultural assumption. We go the opposite way, and we're willing to believe that Jesus sinned as a child and that he was perfected as an adult, and that is blasphemy. It is possible to be a child and be holy. It's possible to be 38 years old. I think I'm 38, and be holy. It's possible to be 80 years old and holy. Am I 37? That feels good. I'm so glad. I couldn't sleep this morning. I was like, am I 37 or 38? And I obviously came to the wrong conclusion. Yeah, Jesse better not be my boss. Susanna's probably going to be my boss. As we're meditating on these, these holy stories, these things actually happen. This is history, but it's history with a purpose. And once again, I'm just going to be a broken record. The purpose of all this is helping us to trust, obey, submit, believe. And that's where this blessing from Elizabeth to Mary ends. And blessed is she that believed. For there shall be a performance of those things which were told her from the Lord. God told you, you believed it, and you're blessed. When the Bible talks about the peace that surpasses all understanding, this is where it's rooted. God has told us who he is and what he's going to do. And rather than doubting him, rather than bucking it and questioning, rather than going through a deconstruction. Y'all ever heard of people deconstructing their faith? That's all the rage right now. There's a lot of people saying, I deconstructed my faith and I left behind those silly remnants that I was given as a child. That's just being deconverted. That's becoming a blasphemer. We don't deconstruct our faith. We allow it to become a holy edifice that we are housed within and take our peace from. We may or may not see each other Christmas Eve or the next Sunday, but we're bound together in Christ, and the whole purpose of what we're doing here is that you and I and everybody we know and love has a saving relationship with Christ Jesus where we are transformed into the image of the only begotten Son, and on that day when Christ appears, we will be like him for we shall see him as he is. Brothers and sisters, I might die tomorrow. You might die tomorrow. We know what's most important today. Amen. Amen. Stand and sing our closing hymn, number 246, Joy to the World.